Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Okay, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Round the Corner, Almost Here Technology. Today, I'm interviewing Frank Marengill, uh, President and CEO of Rise3D, R-I-Z-E-3D.com. They're a 3D printing company. Welcome, Frank. How are you doing? Hi, Richard. I appreciate uh, you having me on today. Yeah, this is great. I'm excited. So um, to start with, let's go real basic. what is 3D printing and how does it physically work? What happens when you print something? Yeah, so 3D printing is an amazing technology that takes what was designed in 3D on a computer and typically slices it uh, one layer at a time and rebuilds it as a physical model. And uh, then that model comes out of this machine as a direct representation of what was designed uh, on the computer program. Uh, Typically, that's used in the past. The the industry is 30 years old. But typically, that was used for prototyping uh, over the last uh, 30 years. And with technologies like uh, we're going to talk about my company, Rise, the uh, uh, industry is moving more and more towards end-use parts, and that's where it really starts to get interesting, where you have uh, custom-manufactured parts on demand. But the same concept is true, which is you take a 3D design and then you uh, slice that one layer at a time and, and print it up, uh, you know, the Star Trek replicator, <laughs> the Avatar right. uh, replicator kind of thing. Well, those happen instantly, it seems, but 3D printing, you know, when I watched it, um, you'll see, let's say, a, you know, a plastic printer shoots out plastic. It'll slowly build up an object one layer at a time, let's say like a toy. So over an hour or a couple of hours, I've seen it, you know, a 3D printer a few years ago now build up, uh, you know, a toy football or like a, the Eiffel Tower, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he, funny enough that you say that because, uh, the industry used to be called rapid prototyping, and the oh. process was anything but rapid. So uh, mm. I think 3D printing is a much better name since it's a very slow process uh, because you're you're really uh, doing it most of the time in a serial process, uh, recreating each layer uh, with with very thin layers. The thinner the layer, the better resolution and the finer. Uh, the the part looks like a real end use part, um, and and I think speed is still one of the problems in the in the industry uh, as far as the need of the market and what the technology can produce. Yeah. So how how did you get into this? What what spurred your interest in doing this initially, and how long you've been working in the industry? Yeah, it's it's another interesting story. Uh, I was. Uh, involved in bringing Israeli technology to the U.S. and starting up their subsidiary here. And I did that a couple times, and, and it's a very small and dynamic tech industry in Israel. And uh, everybody gets to know everybody. 
And so somebody in the 3D printing space, a company called Object, was looking to start up their U.S. subsidiary, and somebody told somebody about me, and they called me, and I said, no, no, I'm already doing something. Thanks anyways. I'm, I'm busy. But uh, I happened to go to Israel in the, the few weeks that followed that, and I saw this machine, and I saw in the magic of a 3D printer, and I had to change gears and, and, and jump in and do this thing. And that was in 2006. So for the last decade, I've been in the 3D printing space. Uh, that company I was working for, Object, merged with an, another company, Stratasys, forming the largest 3D printing company in the world, keeping the name of Stratasys. Um, huh. I, I left them after a year of the merged company uh, looking for my next venture, and I found the, the founder of Rise. And uh, like when I first saw Object, I, uh, I saw the technology that the founder here, Eugene Giller, created. And again, I was uh, amazed, and I saw the potential in this technology. Um, they were a, a couple of scientists looking for a CEO, and I was looking for my next challenge. Uh, so we got together and got funded, and and here we are, ready with a product for Great. the market. Yeah. Yeah. So what what does Rise specifically do? What kind of uh, 3D printing do you do? Yeah, so we are uh, fitting the space that we're calling the manufacturing office, and that is uh, the attacking the uh, the low volume custom manufacturing space, uh, making real end use parts, and that that's the key. As I, as I mentioned, the the prior 3D printing space was in prototyping, and and today that's about a six billion dollar marketplace, and uh, what we're trying to do is to take a share of the $12 trillion manufacturing space. So if you can replace uh, for low volume injection molded requirements, uh, injection molding is a very time-consuming, expensive process, not to make individual parts, but to make the molds themselves. So if you have low volume, you would want to replace that mold with something that's more custom, like a 3D printed right. part. And there might be hundreds of thousands that will justify that. Sometimes there's a there's a line at, at 100, and sometimes there's a line at 10,000 of where it's uh, injection mold or, or 3D print. Uh, so uh, we created a machine we call the Rise 1, very creative name. Uh, that's okay. a joke. Uh, that... Um, uh, that can um, create real end-use parts on demand. And so, what's an uh, example of will, some of the some of the common parts that the machine can make that people normally yeah, people so, understand? You know? Sure. Uh, the where the machine is going to, I think, be the most interesting is uh, in uh, end-use. It, it's in spare part replacements. Now. We're not 100% there right now, so I'm giving you where the technology is going to be the most interesting um, sometime next year. But if okay. you can produce a spare part, instead of manufacturing it on the line, building a few thousand extra, storing them just in case that, uh, I don't know, pick, pick, a, pick a thing, lawnmower uh, a handle or, or a toaster knob, 
something breaks and you call up a, a manufacturer and he has it on the shelf for you. Well, they, that costs them billions and billions of dollars to have those parts ready for you. If they could just print it on demand, that would be a, a huge savings for the entire manufacturing uh, industry. Hmm. Uh, let's pick any kind of custom medical tools. So a, a doctor's doing, doing a surgery, he wants to get this custom tool. Or um, today in the medical world, there's aligners that align uh, drills for, for surgeries. Or an auto mechanic wants to have a machine next to his uh, car for some, some custom automotive uh, bracket that he needs to create. Right. We had uh, an analyst come up to us and say, you know where this would be great is on the, uh, the ships across the sea. They're, they're out for uh, weeks and weeks at a time, and if something breaks, they want to be able to replace it, uh, uh, you know, and, and, they, and they can't get the part. They don't know what's going to break. Have your machine on that ship would be, uh, you know, something that could be very valuable uh, on a, in a military uh, theater. So uh, because our machine can break the chains of what's today – a 3D printing lab, we're able to um, put the machine where the end user wants the part. And that's, that's a problem today in, in 3D printing mm -hmm. industry. Uh, so uh, first let me segregate between the consumer and hobby printers that most people might have heard about and industrial 3D printers. The quality and the performance are night and day. I make the comparison. That's what I was going to ask to, you about about next. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, think about the the early days of laser printers. Uh, when when laser printers came out and came to the desktop, that was in 2001, actually. Um, and by the way, the volume skyrocketed. To to take the expensive $5,000 printer and to have a $250 printer. And instead of having to go down to the print room, you could have a, a, uh, a laser printer at your desktop. That was uh, an amazing transition for the office of, uh, uh, environment. And the RISE solution is going to be the same. But uh, as a comparison from our machine to the hobby machines that are out there today, uh, they're more like dot matrix printers. So you could bring them into the office like you could bring the laser printer, but and they'll make the Word document, they just won't do it professionally. And it's the same kind of analogy we make with those hobby printers. They, they're, they're not with the quality and the durability, the reliability, uh, to really make an industrial end-use part for professionals. They're more for hobbyists. Yeah, why why is that? What is the difference between an industrial printer and a, a hobbyist one? You know, both seem to be laying down material layer by layer. You know, what are some of the basic parameters that make an industrial printer better and make better parts? Yeah, so and I'll leave out our unique technology because we have a, a, a patented process and uh, technology that that I'll explain to you in a little while. But just in okay. general. The difference is reliability, both in uh, repeatability, geometric accuracy, and durability. So the machines just don't last. It's like if you bring your desktop printer down to Kinko's and mm -hmm. they try to run their entire business 
on a desktop printer. In a matter right, of two days, it, it's broken. That's not right. the printer's fault. It was made for a different use, a different application. So if you look at the, the materials that are used in those um, uh, sub-$2,000 printers, they're not made to keep either the geometric accuracy or the durability of an industrial use. That's the first thing. Right. And then, and then yeah. you have um, capabilities that are in the higher end that aren't in the lower end, the material properties, uh, some of the, the size of the parts, uh, the Z strength. Most of those machines you're talking about don't have a heated environment, and that limits the okay. strength in the Z. Z being the, the build direction. Okay, the, the vertical frame, gotcha. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Do, um, do the industrial printers uh, produce thinner layers and more of them? Are there any other factors that make the parts better and stronger? Yeah, so let me give you uh, a little uh, insight into, into our technology, I think is a, is a better way to put it, because there's, there's six different technologies out there today, and uh, they still have a lot of limitations. So uh, we came up with a solution that solves that uh, uh, limitation of being able to provide an end-use part. So we, we lay down a layer of engineering and medical-grade plastic. So that's the, the yeah. first thing. I call that the kind of the, the palette, the blank slate of, of the plastic, because on top of that, uh, we put down an additive or additives uh, in a 300 dot per inch capability. So we jet it down with industrial jet heads, material that changes the mechanical properties voxel by voxel. Voxel because it's volumetric. It soaks into the part up and down. And uh, so we have what, the ability what, to change the mechanical properties of each layer. What's a, yeah, sorry. What's a voxel? A VOX? Yes. A I, voxel? I, yeah, a voxel is a pixel. You know what a pixel is? Mm -hmm. Right. A pixel is a picture element, so it's the, the resolution of the, of the picture. Uh, oh, so a voxel is a volume element. Just, exactly. It's just a three-dimensional version of a pixel. Okay, so if, um, let's say, a, um, I don't know, an, an oil filter is made of um, pieces of fiber, for instance, the, the the size of each individual, let's say, fiber element or plastic element or metal element, each of those are voxels, and they could be smaller and smaller or bigger and bigger. Is that right? Uh, maybe, like, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I'm just saying, think, or... think about the layer uh, Think about the layer of plastic you lay down. In our case, uh, 250 microns. Uh, we have a next, a next release is going to be 100 microns but, you know, a thin layer of material. And if you wanted to change the material, um, uh, put, put a picture on that material, so that would be a pixel. And then if you wanted that uh, picture to soak through that whole layer, that would be the voxel of it. It would be the, the X, Y, and Z of each pixel. So, uh, but okay, what so we able to, we're able to do is to change that material. So like I said, you can lay down uh, color on every every voxel. You could lay down uh, a, a rubberizer on every voxel so you can make rubber and rigid and you can ver vary the flexibility of the part. 
You can make thermal connectivity. You can make electrical connectivity. So you can change the mechanical properties of each layer, voxel by voxel, and then lay another layer on top of it. And, and that is uh, making a, a simple plastic part into almost a, a fully functional assembly as well. Interesting. Okay. What kind of um, unusual or special parts have you been able to make because you can have, it sounds like a, a sandwich of different layers with different properties. What can you do that, yes. that normal manufacturing can't because you can do that? Uh, yes. So uh, one is, um, I think I was going to go to a different one, but maybe the most interesting one is the herring aid business. And in, in hearing aids today, I don't know if you know, but most of the in-the-air hearing aids are 3D printed today. Yeah, you know what's funny? Uh, my, uh, my wife just got some a month and a half ago. Did she? Yeah. yeah and they're really tiny. And, and they, um, So those are probably 3D printed? They're probably 3D printed. They take either a scan or, or a wax mold of her, of her air, and then mm -hmm. they send that out to uh, probably a company in Minnesota, because that's where a lot of them are made, and they convert that into digital data, and then they print that on, the, uh, on a 3D printer. But the problem is that it, it's a fully rigid part, as you know from your wife's hearing aid. So, and it has to be rigid because you want the sound to reflect into the, the canal and into the electronics so that it, it helps with the hearing. Uh, the problem okay. is that it's uncomfortable to the user over time uh, because it's r rigid on the outside, and that uh, uh, that causes noise between the body and the electronic because it actually reflects noise through that rigid part. So what we're able to do is to put a rubber coating as it's 3D printed. It's not afterwards, but we can add uh, a rubberizer as we're printing it so we can make a rubber over rigid uh, 3D printed hearing aid on demand. So what we see is instead of uh, going to the audiologist and coming back a week later and picking up your hearing aid, the audiologist would print your hearing aid better than they have today, and you come back in a couple hours and pick it up. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's an audiologist in, in the mall and you go and grab lunch and you come back and, and your hearing aid is all done, one-stop shopping. But maybe more importantly, you're, you have a, uh, a better hearing aid because it's rubber against your skin. It's not reflecting noise. It feels more comfortably. And you still have rigid inside where you want to reflect the sound. Yeah. So that's just one okay. example of uh, being able to, to augment. And our technology is called augmented polymer deposition. So we, uh, we are uh, voxel by voxel augmenting the polymer. But, but we're a new company. We're just introducing the system. So the, the first two uh, features that we're implementing are color. So we're implementing okay. a uh, text and grayscale pictures, as well as something that's zero post-processing. So if you're in the 3D printing space, you know that you don't just take the machine part off the machine and use it. There's a whole scaffolding structure that's built to support the print when it's printing. That has to be removed, and sometimes that takes longer than the printing itself 
to remove this structure. And with our, okay. uh, we, we actually take almost no time. Uh, a comparison that we have on our website is something that th takes three hours with an alternate technology, we do in 25 seconds. So we, since it's, it's uh, so different, vastly different in time, we call that basically zero post-processing. You know, three hours to 25 seconds is almost three hours to zero. So uh, that, that's what customers love about our product because the hassles of post-processing today are a pain in the butt. That's another difference on the hobby systems is that those machines have uh, very unsophisticated support removal. Basically, they have the same material in the support as the, uh, as the model, and you have to cut off the supports and then sand down those connections if you want to get a, a good-looking right. part, and sometimes that's just not feasible. Yeah, it doesn't. Okay. Um, some of the parts that you may print, do the industries have regulations on tolerances and other things that the, um, the 3D printer can satisfy? You know, what if you're making automotive parts? Would you have to have them tested before they're allowed to be used? Because maybe normal parts in the industry need to meet certain certifications or specifications? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's going to be a big challenge for the industry. As I mentioned, the industry has come from prototyping. And prototyping has its requirements. So sometimes, let's say it's, you're making a connector, the male and the female need to fit together, right? If, if this part needs to clamp together, a top piece, a bottom piece, um, the, there's a certain requirement that, that's needed in, in those designs, but not to the level of, uh, of manufacturing. If you take the next step, then your part needs to um, have the geometric accuracy of the injection molded quality part. So if, if you look at, uh, it's within a few thousands um, that you would need to create. And every, every design in every industry is a little different. If you're making um, toys, you know, maybe you're not as, uh, as critical if it's, if it's not fitting together with another piece. If you're making, I don't know, medical equipment, maybe it's a little more precise. Uh, automotive is, has a huge prerequisite before they would put anything on an automobile. So that may take years of study before it gets into a, the next generation car. Yeah, so do you think that's going to hold up um, the ability of 3D printed products to be used? I mean, what, what will be the, um, I know you're not an attorney, but mm -hmm. do you think in the next few years an auto shop will be able to have a 3D printer and print spare parts when they need to put them in cars? Or do you think it's going to be held up for a while because of, you know, the parts have to be compliant with what goes in the cars nowadays. So I, I think that the, there are some technologies that are getting put into end-use parts already today. Uh, so mm. so uh, I know that uh, Airbus has some non-structural plastic parts that are going into their uh, airplanes today. And... Uh, 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 most of your um, hip replacements today or knee are metal 3D printed parts and, um, and, and like I mentioned, hearing aids. So those parts give credibility to 3D printing for end use capabilities. And there, there has to be a mindset change in manufacturing companies to say, oh yeah, yeah, no, no problem. 
there are several legitimate alternatives to make this part. Uh, we can cast, we can mill, we can um, uh, injection mold, and we can 3D print. Now let's pick the REST technology. That's a mindset change that's coming, but, but far from there now. Um, I, okay. I, I think it's going to take, uh, you know, five years or some to get there, but it's, but it's really coming. So in order for 3D printing to really become mainstream, it has to be recognized on the same level as other manufacturing technologies like sintering or injection molding or any of these traditional technologies that are vetted, that are accepted. 3D printing just needs to become yet another type of manufacturing. Right. If, if, if we're going to be successful in manufacturing and we, we can make custom jewelry and, and today uh, uh, 3D printed is used for molds for lots of things and some of those, those are end use parts but they're kind of custom one-offs and if we're going to be serious in manufacturing uh, we have to have these successes continue. They're already there. Um, the, uh, the genie's out of the, the bottle and, and it's starting to get used more and more and there's more R&D and there's more companies like Rise that are coming out with new technology so there's, there's no question that it's coming. Um, by the way, McKinsey said, I told you the um, market $6 billion today. McKinsey says that in 2025, 3D printing should occupy $250 billion. So in the next wow. nine years, maybe eight years, because we're only a month away from uh, 2017, um, mm. so the next eight or nine years, we're going to go from $6 billion to $250 billion. And most of that growth is going to be in manufacturing. Wow. So that's it. What do you think is going to happen as, um, you know, as 3D printing takes hold? Do you think that, you know, offshoring will be reduced? Uh, jobs will come back to the U.S.? Or what, what do you think will happen with manufacturing? Yeah, so it's, it's a big step. Manufacturing is, uh, as I mentioned, $12 trillion. So $250 billion of of 12 trillion is not even 5%, right? So uh, it's, it's uh, two and a half percent, two percent. So there, there's still a lot of justification for manufacturing in the most efficient method, even with 3D printing. But every little bit helps, absolutely right. right. Uh, I think 3D printing brings a lower barrier to entry for startups, for new manufacturing companies, uh, the ability to to make something to make one or ten of something uh, that has the accuracy of of a real part, but you don't have to spend the twenty five or fifty or or five hundred thousand dollars for a big injection mold. Uh, you're able to do it with a three D printer. That'll help a lot of entrepreneurs get into the business and decide if their product is uh, valuable enough to to take it to the next step. Any, um, anything that's looming that could be a showstopper or slow things down dramatically? Oh, I don't think so. But, you know, all of this, uh, there is IP uh, discussions. I thought you were going to go there with your last statement with the, with the legal part of it. Um, there's always discussions about uh, what is uh, the right, who has the rights, and, and what is, uh, the limits of, of 3D printing. For example, if I take uh, 
uh, Mickey Mouse and I scan mm. him and then I print him, do I have the right to do that? You know, there's a, there's a question about that. Um, uh, let's say the, the Mickey that I bought. <laughs> so it's, it, I bought the Mickey and then I scanned him and reproduced him. Um, so uh, this is, that's the same kind of uh, uh, different IP rights. Um, if, I, if I scan it in one country and I printed it in another country, how, how does that work? And who, where are there tax laws between the two of them? And so there's, there's a whole new method of commerce that has to be discussed and, and, and uh, intellectual property rights um, that, are, that are being worked out or at least discussed as we speak for the new paradigm of 3D printing end use parts. Yeah, this seems like it's going to be a big battle, battle between traditional manufacturing and this on-demand um, manufacturing through 3D printing. I, I think they're very complementary, and I, I use that same 2D argument all the time because it already already exists. We can see it. So if you go to that same Kinko shop, <laughs> then uh, there there's always the the printer that's out front that makes the the one at a time copy. Uh, even though there's that high-volume machine in the back. And they both coexist beautifully together. And I think that's the same thing with 3D printing. It's just another tool for manufacturers, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, it, okay. it replaces such a small percentage of manufacturing. It's not a competitor. It's, it's uh, augmenting it. It's su supplementing what's already going on. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. That's true. That's a, that's a better way to look at it, right? It has a place, yeah, and it's not it just going to push everything out. Right. Um, right. So, no. so where, are you, where is Rise at specifically with the technology? Are you, in the, are you right now printing 3D parts, and are they being used in certain industries, or are you just about to start? Or you know, where is the company yes. at at this moment? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we were venture-funded two years ago. Uh, just just over two years, we we built a small team of industry pioneers. This team has more than 20 3D printing patents. So we're we're 14 people with more than 20 patents in 3D printing alone. Um, and uh, so so it's a really uh, highly uh, competent 3D printing team that we pulled together to uh, to make the uh, make this company and make this product. Uh, we, we brought the product out of stealth mode in July and, and started some beta testing in October, um, October and, and November, so now just the last couple of months. Uh, we're at three different locations in the Boston area, uh, and we have plans to install with one of the largest auto manufacturers in January, so we're pretty excited about that given us an opportunity to, uh, you know, to get into one of the big auto companies. And um, we are just uh, uh, finalizing our current round of funding, which will allow us to expand into uh, the marketplace. So to, to bring on a, a field team of sales, marketing, customer support, application team, and um, start manufacturing and, and, and start selling uh, we actually started pre-selling this year, uh, uh, starting in in uh, late October, and we will uh, will deliver those systems in uh, March. 
Yeah, for people listening, what what <clears throat> industries or companies would be particularly suited to contact you and to find out about getting, you know, one or more of your machines uh, involved in their manufacturing? So, so the way I, I describe it, and and it's not a given industry as much as it is a a type of uh, a cost of a product. So any product, let's pick uh, an, an automotive, an aerospace, a, an iPhone, uh, any kind of uh, complex electronics that the precision is important enough to have a uh, a, a very precise prototype is is a good customer for us to have right now because the low-hanging fruit in this industry is still uh, prototyping. That's why I mentioned uh, the prototypes. And we are working on the mindset change for uh, manufacturing, but that's going to take some time. So in the meantime, we're selling these uh, uh, machines for somebody that wants to do form, fit, and function. A lot of the case today, 3D printers are used for form and fit, but they're not really functional parts. Either they don't have the right accuracy, they don't have the right strength, they don't have the right uh, heat uh, deflection temperatures, so or, or too brittle. There, there are some. There's some reason why either uh, uh, from a, a physical standpoint, uh, from a geometric accuracy standpoint, they don't meet the needs of a real functional part, uh, we're able to address that market to make a real functional form fit and function part for uh, for prototyping and then uh, work towards end use parts. What kind of uh, materials can you print in? You know, I'm sure certain kinds of plastics, but can you do metals, ceramics, any other unusual? I mean, what, what kind of things can be printed? Yeah, so we, we are a a plastic printer first off and and we're we're introducing the machine with one very high-end uh, engineering plastic that is strong has good heat uh, deflection uh, has a little bit of flexibility not too brittle uh, it's uh, medical approved for medical so it can uh, have contact with your short contact with your skin so it's a really good everyday plastic. We will have a family of material. This is just our first material, uh, but they will all be in the plastic family. Okay, gotcha. Or is, is each type of material a whole world in itself with all kinds of challenges? Is that yeah, why? Yeah, it really I mean, is. Yeah, yeah. So, so for instance, uh, we match our thermoplastics with our, um, our additives, right? We call them inks because they go through uh, inkjet heads, uh, but they're, they're not all uh, color inks. Some are, I say, uh, release inks or rubberizing inks or whatever. So we have to match our plastics and our inks uh, uh, molecularly so that they, they do what uh, each does what we ask it to do. And matching those up is a, it's a science, and it takes a lot more time than your typical 3D printer. Uh, but there's a lot of exciting things we can do. For example, uh, strength in the Z. You can imagine as you're putting a layer down, the layer on top of it isn't uh, the same strength between the layers as within the layer itself. And right. that could be, that, that's called uh, 
you know, isotropic or lack of isotropic properties, not isotropic meaning um, uh, same in all directions. Right. Uh, so we're, because we are able to uh, produce, uh, have additives in between each layer, we can produce isotropic strength in materials that no one else can do. So being isotropic makes it closer to injection molded quality or end use part quality. Um, on other technologies, the strength in the Z is about 60%. They lose 40% of their strength in that build direction, in that Z direction. Okay. So you're only as strong as your weakest link. So really, they're only 60% of their stated strength. Interesting. Okay. Do you think it's a, um, a fantasy right now for a... Um you know, a replicator like you see in the movies where it can, you know, print in 10 different materials all in one machine, you know, really fast? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I think it's uh, it's not so far away. I don't know who's going to have it. I don't know how it's going to happen because – but someday we're going to say, wow, I didn't think of it like that. You know, the same way when I met the founder of this company, Eugene Giller, uh, I said mm – -hmm. Wow. You know, I had been in the industry eight years. I had seen all the technologies, had competed with all the technologies, ours and everyone else's. Why didn't I think of it? Why didn't the designers of the technology that we're closest to think about this, this alternative? I don't know. They just didn't. You know, yeah. we, we all think yeah. that these innovations are, are easy, but we don't come up with them. <laughs> They're just easy to yeah. understand once someone else comes up with them. Uh, so there will be these multiple material with multi multiple functionalities built in, electronics built in, moving parts. Um, it'll be the replicator as, that you see uh, on TV. Uh, but um, I, I don't know when. But uh, I don't, you know, it, it's amazing how fast these uh, autonomous cars are, are going. Right. You know, if you, if you asked me just two years ago, I'd say, ah, it's so far out. Why are we even talking about it? And, and now we see them actually on the road. That's shocking. So, you know, yeah, I just test, I test drove a Tesla uh, this past week and we put it on autopilot mode and it was amazing. You know, it truly was. No so, yeah, they're, they're here. They're definitely yeah, here. So you drove in a car that had uh, autonomous driving? Yeah, I drove in the Tesla Model X, and um, we yeah. went on the highway, and we put on autopilot mode, and it was scary, but I slowly yeah. took my hands off the wheel, and my <laughs> foot wasn't on the gas wow. of the brake, and the car drove. It drove in the lane. It it made turns in the highway, and, you know, someone came in front of us. We slowed. It slowed down. I mean, it did. It drove, you, had to do you know, it. for about 10 minutes. Yeah. It was amazing. And then when, right. um, so, when we got to park, yeah. the car parked itself, too. So it's, you know, it's definitely almost here or it's here. Would you have believed that two years ago? I wouldn't have. That, that would be no. that close. Yeah. I mean, we heard about it, but it, that it would be that close. Uh, so anyway, I, I make the same analogy with, with uh, the replicator. Um, it's definitely nearby, but could it be a decade? Sure. You know, right. time goes by so quickly. It could be another decade before we see something like that. But But somebody will come up with it just the same way. Rise is new, and we're bringing, you know, this new technology to the marketplace. There is 
some scientist somewhere in the world that's working on something that we don't know about that's going to add, complement this, this uh, fast-growing industry. Definitely. Okay. Well, this has been great. Um, you know, for companies or individuals that, you know, have enjoyed the interview, they want to get in touch with Rise, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, so they can they can send it to me, uh, which is Frank Marangel M A R A N G E L L at rise3d.com, or just info at rise3d.com. Right, or they could visit the website too. Okay. W well, very good. Rise 3D. <laughs> yeah, well, Frank, I appreciate your time. This has been a great interview, and uh, yeah, this this is great. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. I appreciate it. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.